getting to work with him every week is a is a treasure and a delight. <laughs> he's a he's a good man. He and Tish have, have blessed us, and we are thankful for every one of you all who have come. This is a a church where uh, you all are the, the church. You know, it's not a building. It's not. Uh, you know, theology, it's not a vision, you are that. And it's, it's all under Jesus. We are, we are his people. That's why we want to linger along sometimes in our, uh, our fellowship time. We just take our time because we want to get to know you and, and vice versa. Uh, as much as we're trying to get to know the Lord and be known and seen and these kind of things, it's really impossible to do that apart from the spirit in community together. And so that's why we like to just slow things down a bit. And, uh, and when we slow things down, we hear funny things. When, when you have five daughters at home and you just slow down and pay attention to how they're really playing, <laughs> you, can, you can be surprised sometimes of what it is that they're, they're, uh, they're doing. And so uh, Elizabeth and I, we would hear them sometimes uh, telling these stories and doing this like playing, uh, like they would do makeup things. And oftentimes what they would do is that they would begin the game where they would begin the, the playtime with, and the parents were killed. <laughs> like the boxcar children, right? You know, like, you know, like Frozen. And, uh, and so then they would begin to, to play out what it was like, you know, to, uh, to be on their own, to have, uh, you know, freedom in the land, you know, I guess. And, and Elizabeth and I, we were kind of weirded out about that at first, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and we did some reading, and, and from my psychology background, we know that uh, that kids will sometimes, uh, you know, begin to kind of play with uh, what they see around them, but also with ideas and concepts. And it's, it doesn't mean anything to them as far as like someone's actually dead or whatever. It, it just for them, it's a chance to take on maybe in this case, being adults or, you know, having a sense of freedom. One day we'll be in that place. And, and that's been often true of humanity's uh, ethos and also pathos. We're trying to figure out oftentimes what it is that we're experiencing. You know, if you do a, a survey of some of the uh, most popular video games right now, you've got like Elden Ring, you've got Baldur's Gate 3, you've got <laughs> Disco Elysium, you know, and, and uh, you know, and, and in these games, there's been like a devastation in the land. And the, the hero was trying to put the pieces together and some, some interesting story and, and they're trying to defeat the, the bosses so they can gain back a little bit of of you know the goodness and maybe put it back together again these games uh, are art in many ways imitating life because we, we have around the world around us we have experienced a fall uh, since sin since the garden and and we've been trying to figure out you know what is this existence what is this reality ever since uh, and this isn't a new thing either this has been around like i think it was disney's first film was all these skeletons dancing around if you guys have seen that before you know, Fantasia was just an incredible, you know, operatic score of death and life trying to work itself out. You know, if you guys know the Dark Ages, there'd be the gargoyles and just symbols, symbols of death and just, just culture trying to work out, you know, what's going on in the midst of black death. And, and uh, you know, so we have uh, The Walking Dead, we have The Last of Us, we have these shows that are, you know, this landscape of a post-apocalyptic scene. And in many ways, is people actually just trying to work out what is, what is reality. If you read the scriptures with that question in mind, you'll actually get a lot more out of the scripture than if you see it as a history book. Our, our Bible is not 
primarily a history book. It is a history of God's interactions with people for the purpose of helping, however, for us to understand the meaning of all things that are out there and ultimately get to know him as life, as the one who is putting all the pieces and has put all the pieces together in Jesus. We, uh, I want to talk about this a bit uh, in the midst of what we have been sensing happening. I want to say it's been in our congregation. Um, I will venture to say in the weeks ahead that it's been something that is happening around our, our nation and certainly our globe. Uh, here in our community, we've been experiencing amazing life. Uh, people's lives, y'all's lives are being transformed. Uh, also, we are experiencing the difficulties that are also associated with life in a very concentrated way. You know, like we're talking about with my mom, other people's parents, kids, these kind of things. They, we're, we're experiencing these things in a very concentrated way. And, and that's not unusual in history. What is unique about it is, is how much it's happening, how quickly it's happening, and how concentrated it's happening. And we're anticipating within our body, because we're hearing words like from Laura, from Reed, and, and many others, that there's a new birth that's happening. You guys knew that when we started this church, I would say things at times like there's a reformation upon us. And this church is just one expression of many of a reformation around the church. Um, there's, a, there's a new expression of Jesus to help now with the days that we're going through. There's a, a great darkness upon the land. You know, if you read the scriptures, that's what it says. But in the midst of a great darkness, there's a great light that also dawns. And so uh, the closer we get to the Lord, the more we come to know him and his suffering. That word suffering in the Greek means to experience him as he is. And so that means in all of his difficult suffering, but also in his difficult experiences, but also in his amazing experiences of intimately knowing God. So the more that you pursue Jesus, you're, you're going to find out this almost incredible you know, uh, intensity at times of, of his love and his joy and his peace. And you're going to experience at times the cost that he went through so you can know his great love in the midst of, of what it is you're going through. This theme that I'm talking about is, and always has been, right at the very front of the scriptures and always in the background of the scriptures in general. And so let me explain what I mean by that through reading Genesis chapter 1. Again, this is not primarily an, uh, a story of the creation historically of the material world. This is to help us to understand and to have a sense of meaning of the world itself. So the ancient writers, they're not at all talking about evolution here. They're not at all talking about creative design at all. You know, we can, I can, we can look into it if we want to, but we're looking into it from our modern perspective. Here, they're trying to help us to understand the meaning of things. <clears throat> and so in the beginning, and I'm going to read this from my notes because there's a better translation uh, that I'm going to read from. Uh, in the beginning, God created <clears throat> the heavens and the earth. And so I'm going to say it like this. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. And the land was wild and waste. And darkness was on the face of the abysmal waters. And the wind, or the Spirit of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. I'm going to read that again. In the beginning, God created, or was in the, the midst of creating, the skies and the land. And the land was wild and waste. And darkness was on the face of the abysmal waters. And the wind and Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the waters. And so... 
<clears throat> you have two different words describing waters here. These are really important to know. The first one is this word that means like chaos. It means nothingness. Right? Uh, it, it, it would have been like in, in that world, the, uh, the, the Jewish people looking out over a great ocean and, and believing that every time they got into that ocean, they were going to drown. The same waters in the next verse, the exact same waters. It's a different word, but it's the same concept. The same exact waters now had the, the spirit or the wind of God hovering over those, those waters. And now they were teeming with life. And so it would have been like the Israelites looking at that same ocean and now seeing that they can get fish from it or they can harness it for trade. <clears throat> same concept, but whatever hovered over either darkness or the spirit caused those chaotic waters to become different. Either it was chaotic and nothingness and devolving into nothing. It was like the, the Elden Ring story. It was like the walking dead amongst us. It was, it was zombies amongst us. It was eventually a devolution and uh, like a thermodynamic response of decay. And that's what was this pathos of humanity. They would look out. And that was, that's what they saw. That's what the abysmal waters were. However, when the Spirit of God hovered over those same waters, fish, life, land began to rise up. <clears throat> Gardens become watered. Those same waters could become springs. They could be directed to where we needed to be able to have water to live off of, no matter where they went. And it went from there, these, these wasted lands became gardens as this water that now had the Spirit of God hovering over them. And you trace this out through Genesis 1 and 2. These waters began to nourish the land. Life was in these waters. They began to be places where people could cultivate it for their own garden purposes and these kind of things. The only difference between the two of them was what hovered over them. God would begin to help draw this out a little bit more in the stories ahead. He called a guy named Abram, and he said, wherever you go, you'll be blessed. Those who blessed you will be blessed. Those who cursed you will be cursed. I will, in a sense, hover over you. You'll be like a garden. You'll be like a priest. We've been talking about these last weeks. You'll be like a, a, a priest. And everywhere you go, my blessing will follow you. If you follow the story of Abram to Abraham, he became the father of many nations. You know, he was exceedingly wealthy. Wealthy. Every battle that he went into, he won. Every place that he went into, when he was favored, favor followed. When he was cursed, cursing followed. He was like this one that he helped determine whether or not you had the spirit hovering over you or you had the darkness hovering over you. And then you begin to trace that out. He had a son and a grandson and on him until he got to the Joseph. Joseph was a famous guy in Scripture. He was... Uh, he was thrown into a pit by his brothers, and then his brothers shipped him off to be a slave in Egypt. And where he was enslaved, where uh, Joseph was first enslaved in that land, and there became later on a famine. <clears throat> when he was thrown into prison in Egypt, uh, a famine began to come to the land. But when he was elevated to a place of being a prince, that famine in land also then therefore had favor. They had provision. They were able to be a place where all borrowed from them. And eventually, because of the wealth of Egypt, because of Joseph's influence, all nations around them came to them and gave to them their own sovereignty. 
<clears throat> the spirit was hovering over them because of the favor of God through Joseph upon that family of God. And that began to become traced throughout all of history. Uh, God tried to make it plain with Adam uh, and his son Cain. Do you guys know that one? Uh, there's a, a pleasing sacrifice that Abel offered, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over that. This is in Genesis chapter 3. But Cain didn't offer that sacrifice. So there was darkness hovering over him, so much so that God said to Cain, hey, be careful. Sin is crouching, waiting to devour you, waiting to destroy you. And so Cain was given that choice. What are you going to live with? Which one? And he chose darkness. <clears throat> and this thread is a thread that we see throughout Every time you're reading in scripture about rivers or springs, it's to remind you back, because the language is the same, it's to remind you of Eden. You know, it's to remind you that God is the one who brings forth life, and the people of God, everywhere they go, they're, they're called to bring forth life. And so you have four rivers that are mentioned in Genesis 1. And each river, again, they're not trying to be specifically geographic, historical in the sense of time, Instead, they're trying to help give meaning to what was going on in the world. And oftentimes, places were theologically referenced in the scripture to help understand what was going on at the time. So there's four rivers talked about, and I want to gently argue that they're not talking about little rivers, although they are, but primarily they're talking about how we can become blessed where we are in the land. Because these four rivers, you know, the Euphrates River, that's the one that flowed into Syria, where the great enemy of the Israelites were. There was another, the Tigris, that flowed into Babylon, which is where the Israelites would end up in captivity. There was the one that went to Havilah. Havilah was on the way to Egypt. So people would have known on your way to Egypt, there's this river like Eden that is going to be there with you. And there was the last one called the, uh, the Pishon or the Gihon. And in that one, uh, the Gihon River, that is actually a spring that's found in Jerusalem. <clears throat> You know, archaeologists, they, they've gone to Iraq and they can see four riverbeds coming from that area. That sounds great. Yes, I don't, I don't have any problems with the geographic place called Eden. More importantly is that when the Israelites read that there's a spring called Gihon in Jerusalem, it was to let them know that Jerusalem was to be in Eden and out of the temple, out of the, the, the garden that was their temple, was supposed to flow these rivers of water to water the nations. The nations were to go to Jerusalem to find that. And when they were in Babylon, if you guys remember from Jeremiah, I'm going I'm to assume a lot of this crowd. And if you guys want to listen later on, you can. Uh, Jeremiah talks about this. And while he was over there, God spoke very specifically to him. He said that while you're in... I'm just going to read the passage. That's going to be better. So in Jeremiah 29... Jeremiah is having this conversation with God, and in this place, he is, God is telling him about who the people of Israel are in the midst of captivity. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says, and this is Jeremiah 29, verses 4 and following. He says, to all the captives he has exiled in Babylon from Jerusalem. Remember, there's a river that is in Jerusalem. You know, called the Tigris, or sorry, in Babylon, called the Tigris or Euphrates. And it goes back to Genesis 1. There's a river of God that, is, that the Spirit of God hovers over. In verse 5, it says, Build homes there in Babylon and plan to stay. Plant gardens. Eat the food these gardens produce. So be fruitful. Marry and have children. And then find spouses for them so they may also have grandchildren. 
multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. This is a garden mandate. This is in Babylon. You all are a garden in the midst. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I send you into exile. Pray for the Lord, pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Again, everywhere the people of God go, they offer the river of God, the river of Eden, to that place and to that people. You know, the Israelites, they had thought that their God was locked into a temple that God did not want them to build initially. It was in the heart of David, and he said, hey, that's nice, but I don't want you to build it. I'd rather kind of be in a tabernacle. We know this also from Jesus. We know that, you know, the, that God didn't want them to have a king over them. He wanted them to always have Jesus and God to be their king. And so we know that he didn't want to be locked into a temple, so to speak. But, and, and he never was. But the people of Israel, they believed that because God was in their temple, they could kind of do what they wanted to do. And they got really slack in following Jesus, following God. And so as a result of this, you know, they were, they were exiled into captivity, and they thought that their whole world was gone. But God was reimagining them and helping them to reimagine their circumstances. Their existence was not tied to a land. Their existence was not tied to a temple. Their, their faithfulness, their righteousness, their, their flourishing was never going to be tied to a place. Instead, it was tied to them if they would follow God. Everywhere they went, God went. And it's an astonishing, if you, if you really think this through, it's an astonishing promise over a people that everywhere a person goes, the God of the universe will follow so that they may flourish. It's an amazing confidence that's offered to them. And, and God sums up really well in Deuteronomy where he says, choose life. I, 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 I lay before you life or death. Choose life in, in following me. And of course they don't. You know, he makes it really clear. And, and I, I hope that encourages you all that left to your own, you wouldn't choose God. As best as you think that you would, when life's you know, turmoil hits you, when the darkness floats around you, apart from the love of Jesus and the Spirit, we all would, would be like the Israelites. And they're instructed for that purpose alone to humble us, to keep us in a place of humility. So this theme, though, it continues on. And I don't know what Reed was paying attention to when he was praying, but it's as if he was reading my sermon uh, when he was praying for my mom, because everything that he was saying, I'm like, well, there, I don't need to preach, you know? <laughs> Everywhere you go, you're a temple. So in uh, Ezekiel 47, uh, so <laughs> Ezekiel's a prophet, and he's taken up to have this vision uh, of, of, of history and reality as we knew it. How much fun would that be? You know, if God just came to you one day and you're just having a normal day, and you're, maybe you're at a cubicle or maybe you're having a cup of coffee or whatever it might have been, and all of a sudden you can just get sucked out, you know, and whoop, you know, you're, you're seeing this quasi-realm. You're like, what is going on? And it's terrifying. You've got weird creatures that are there that represent things that are really difficult for the untrained mind. Ezekiel has this vision, and starting in verse 30, uh, chapter 37, he begins to have a vision of the temple, but it's different. And it's actually not the temple in Jerusalem. He's taken to Jerusalem, but then he says, he says he's taken to a higher mountain than Jerusalem's mountain. Well, you know, so prophetically speaking, he's taken to Zion. He's taken to heaven itself. And scholars have no idea really what he's talking about. They've debated this for centuries, that there's this temple 
that Ezekiel's talking about, and it's measured, and it's big, and it has all these interesting formations to it. But this temple itself, you know, is really kind of hard to, to determine. People are thinking, well, when's it going to come? Or is this now for us? Or how are we going to build this? Is it going to be in Jerusalem? The short answer to that question is that Jesus tells us plainly what this temple is. All right? If you guys know the, the story of Jesus, there's a part where he is told, uh, if you take down this temple in three days again, it'll be raised up. And he's talking about his body. And I'll, I'll read some scriptures in a little bit that tells you about that temple that Ezekiel's talking about, that I'm going to read from about here. It's actually you. It, it's you in Jesus. That's the temple that Ezekiel is talking about here. Ezekiel then has as part of this vision a, a vision of, of a, a throne itself. And in this vision, in verse 1 of chapter 47, the man, this, this angel, brought Ezekiel back to the entrance of the temple and I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. It was coming out of the throne itself. The man brought me outside the wall to the north gate and led me around to the eastern entrance. And there I could see the water flowing through the south side of the east gateway. And so he sees this temple and he sees this water coming out from the throne area and the altar itself. And then it heading east and it's going to head east to where the Dead Sea is today. Again, this is garden metaphor. Out of Eden, there was a spring that came out. So, you know, so out of the spring of the garden of life, there is the Lord himself watering all of creation for all that hovers over it. And so Ezekiel is seeing that God is in the act of recreating and helping to encourage again, hey, his, his water is still flowing. Ezekiel was in Babylon. He was in this place of darkness and chaos. But he's being encouraged, hey, in this place where there's chaos around you, where there's nothingness around you, where it looks like there's death, there's, there's crooked politicians, there's lying everywhere, there's greed everywhere, the, the, the people are in the streets, they're throwing things around, they're destroying Portland, whatever you want to call it. You know, in that place, and then we got some people that are from near Portland, uh, in that place, just to remember that there is a river that makes glad the city of God. Today, it's here now. Ezekiel's seeing this, and he's seeing this for us, and it goes out to this uh, to the east to a place called the Dead Sea. And it says that in that place, the, the Dead Sea itself is made sweet again. It, it's made clean again. And all life around there flourishes. In verse 9. It's an astonishing thing that happens. So the Dead Sea is the place... This is such a good story. So the Dead Sea is the place where Sodom and Gomorrah used to be. And uh, archaeologists, a couple years ago, they discovered that there's a 200-mile radius around this place called the Dead Sea where there was a cataclysmic event where all things were destroyed for centuries. And, and they, they've, they, they show this plainly in the rocks, you know, the sulfur. You know, it's, it's undeniable that that event happened. And so as the biblical you know, authors are looking at this, they say, well, that was, that was the Lord. And it was, it was barren for centuries. This is saying that there will come a time where the river of God will go to that place, and, and there's a symbol here, where humanity itself and its, and its humanness and its fallenness was destroyed. But the river of God, the, the life of God, will come back to it and hover, and all things will be made alive again. Through this temple that we know of as Jesus and his church, as we begin to submit to God and let the river of life flow through us, all of humanity, symbolized by the Dead Sea, will become made fresh again, and all life now will be given back to humanity. That's, that's the interpretation of Ezekiel and what's happening here. In verse 9, 
it's a it's a beautiful verse. There will be uh, swarms of living things wherever the water of this the whatever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea, all the way from Engedi, all the way to the Mediterranean shores, and all life will fill this Dead Sea, just like they, they fill the Mediterranean. This is a symbol of, uh, of humanity and a symbol of the redemption of mankind. It's important for us because, again, the picture is wherever the Spirit of God is hovering, life is going to flow out of. Wherever the Spirit of life in your life is hovering, you will have life. Wherever there is darkness hovering over there, there will be death that's there. And, and the choice is still there between you and I. The choice is no longer as intense as like, you know, you're not going to have eternal life if you make some bad mistakes. However, uh, we know in our congregation that these last weeks, as I've been alluding to, there's been just difficulty that's out there. Uh, people have been uh, feeling like they need to give up on relationships, to give up on jobs, or they've been in a feeling to, to give up on, you know, a life of belonging, the, their own life or others. And we've seen that there's just, like for some people, there have been parts of their life where there's been despair, where, where death is at work to discourage and bring about hopelessness, where there's been uh, discouragement, uh, wanting, wanting to give up. And I want to encourage you that as, as the light of the body of Christ increases and the river of life flows stronger, um, that will overcome whatever darkness we're facing in life. Every single time. Our job is to yield those things to the Lord. Our job is to let him flow into that dead part of our life. And, and for all of us, you have your history that's going to tell you, oh, well, you know, you failed before. You know, your, your genes are going to cause you to fail again because you, you can get a genetic test. You know, well, you've got a 54% chance that you're going to have, you know, ADD or you're going to be stupid or something like that. I don't know. I don't know what they, they say dumb things, you know. So, you know, you have these genetic tests that tell you, well, you know, there's an 80% chance that you're going to have cancer, whatever. And you're like, oh, that's good to know. <laughs> and so you have all these reports that are out there. And we've been talking about that with our family this week. And it's like, all right, you know, I, I, you know thank you for your information. But what is the Spirit of the Lord that hovers over all things going to do about that? And so even our own lives, as we submit them to the Lord, you know, when you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to your own uh, death. You, you, you died. <laughs> You know, and, and so therefore your life is no longer your own. You're trapped. <clears throat> You're trapped by life and love. Paul would say that he's a bondservant to love. He's, you know, he can't help him any longer. And so uh, what's going to happen in your life, and continue to do so, is that you're going to be increasingly, and all of us are, you know, faced with these seemingly like, like really difficult decisions. Like you're, you're going to have times where you feel the chaos around you. You're going to at times feel nervous or afraid because you have this choice or that choice. And I want to encourage you that uh, on the other side of letting that go is the river of life. The reason why we feel afraid about that is because on some level, I know we would never say this out loud, but somewhere deep within us, we believe that that thing is actually offering us life, you know, offering us security. And that can be like friendships. You know, as, as Elizabeth and I have, we matured in our relationship, we've recognized areas where we look to each other for life. We've had to recognize, oh, that's not, your, that's not your responsibility. You can't be the one that validates me or affirms me or brings forth life in my heart. Although I, I know you want to. 
And I know that we try to do that for one another. We, we try to love it, but ultimately it's just Jesus that can be the one that satisfies us. You know, we have, we have wonderful parents. They're amazing. I want to see them live forever. You know, they're in the Lord's hands. You know, ultimately all the life that comes from them is coming from him from Jesus anyway. And so we, we, we constantly offer our kids, you know, to the Lord. I mean, the, the first time the, each one of my daughters would be born, like I would, a doctor would give me their life. It was just amazing, like these babies in my hand. And, and every time I just remember committing to the Lord, before they were in my hand, they were always in yours. But as, as they are coming into my hand, they're always only from your hand, and I just offer them always constantly back to you as, as an act of just devotion to you. They're a wonderful gift. We love them, but ultimately they are yours. Help us to steward and nurture their lives in response to that. But it's like that with our jobs. We are called to be those who cooperate and partner with God. That's what Reed was praying. It was, what he was praying was amazing. Like We get to partner with God, and then God partners with us. That's the, that's the point of these things. As we partner with God, the river of life hovers over us. The Spirit of God hovers over us, and the river of life flows through us. So the, the way that, so Jesus, he was baptized. And, and as he comes up out of the chaotic waters, guess what's there resting upon him in his baptism? If you guys know the story, he comes up out of the waters and the spirit of God rests and hovers. And from that point forward, no matter where Jesus went, the spirit was hovering over him, always. And then do you remember what Jesus did with his disciples? You know, the first thing he blessed them with, my spirit, my, my peace, I give to you. And so from that point forward, Isaiah 61 is yours, along with Jesus's. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, hovering over me to preach good news to the poor, to open up eyes to the blind, to set the captives free. And if you continue to read on, to take these ruined cities and make them new again, to reflourish them. That's garden language. It's about the Spirit of God that's hovering over you to go into the dark places of our city and cause it to flourish, to rebuild the ancient ruins. As you do that, then you are filled with the river of life. And sometimes you know that the Lord's asking you to step into an area where you feel uncomfortable with. And the more you resist it, the more you'll feel a little bit dried up and a little bit more doubting, a little bit purposeless, a little more rudderlessness. Because that's not where life is for you. And so you, you yield that to the Lord. When you yield these things, it's not about sacrifice. It's about life. We do not sacrifice anything any longer to the Lord. We just go from life to life. If we give up something that's not a sacrifice, we, we are not, we're not submitting to death. We've already died. We don't go Dutch to the table of God. And we, don't, we don't have to pay our way. We don't have to sacrifice anything. And so if we're being asked to, to die in an area, we're not actually submitting to death. We are submitting to life. And so when a death, when a seed goes into the ground and dies, it's to be raised up again and to multiply fruit. So everything in the kingdom is increase. Everything in your life is meant to be increase. And so when we begin to feel those lives, those areas of our life that are hopeless, or maybe I just want to give up that project, maybe you've got dreams that you've been dreaming about and it just feels like it's just not there anymore. Maybe you just kind of want to quit on a person. I would submit to you all that it's possible that death is at work in that place. Hey, there's times where where the Lord says, hey, you need to set a boundary, you need to walk away. I get that. I'm not, that's a sermon for another time. But there's times where the Lord is saying, hey, you know, maybe there's something that, that you can just yield to me and you offer that and you let the river of life flow into that area of your life and watch what the Lord does in that place. Watch how he brings old things and dead things to life as you do that. And so as you yield to him, you begin to experience life 
life super abundantly. He asked me years ago, 20 years ago, to come to Charlotte. I was living in Atlanta, had a group of friends. My life was there because I went to Georgia Tech, was an engineer, a whole big story of that. But he said, come to Charlotte, come to seminary, and, and leave all these things behind. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I honestly, I didn't know any of all this right now. I just was like, yeah, sure, God. And, you know, and, and what met me here was this oasis in the desert. It, it was astonishing because I didn't know what to have. I didn't have a job and having lined up. But he said, go and went to seminary here. And it was just, it was like life flowing. And I've learned as a principle that as I yield to the Lord these things, life will always follow. The New Testament writers, they were, they were keen in on this. It's so beautiful. So in Ephesians chapter 3, it says, all of us are like a, the whole building are, are being fit together, growing into the temple of the Lord. Citizens of heaven, we are called to be on a mission, a part of God's temple here on earth, spreading even where, Eden everywhere we go. We, we are citizens of heaven because we are built up into a temple of God here on earth. Everywhere we go, that's, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. That's what he's talking about in that place. Let me read it out loud to you again just so that you guys can see that this is the language of Paul. It's the language of Jesus. It's been there all throughout history to help us understand the meaning and purpose of all things. Why is there an awareness of death in our culture and not yet an awareness of life? It's because we as a church are called to bring life. I would love it if someone would enter into Elden Ring or enter into Walking Dead and then renew it according to the image of Jesus. What would that be like? You know, what, what would it be like to have that land completely transformed by a garden? You know, what would it like to be able to walk into the Walking Dead show or Last of Us and just look at those people instead of shooting everybody, those zombies, those Walking Dead, who are all those people that are in the city behind us, and just lay hand on them and said, live, and they, they just transform their life again. How much fun would that be, you know? That's your call. Like, like, let's make movies like that. You know, let's go in there and create art like that. Let's, let's, let's tr like, truly create art that's real. Because the art that's being created out there, man, they have no hope. They're just going from death to death to death to death and death to death. And eventually everyone dies. It's just a chaotic nothingness, you know, that they, they live with. And I'm sorry to be kind of, like, judgy like that. I'm not trying to be preachy. I'm just saying that you guys have the offer, a, a better form of art than they do. So, uh... Ephesians chapter 2, 19. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his temple, his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We were carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this holy dwelling where God lives by his spirit. The spirit where God dwells is a river that flows out of the temple of God like Ezekiel saw, like, God, like we saw in the garden, like was hovering over Abraham. Everywhere you go, you carry that blessing with you. And you have to do it actively. You have to, and I'm, I'm using have-to language, and I'm sorry about that. I love the invitational language. Hey, there's always an invitation to come further. There's, a, there's an insistence that you all, as, as people that look like Jesus, there's an insistence that you flow in the Holy Spirit. That, that you have the Spirit. So when, when Jesus prays, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, the language literally in the Greek is it's, it's an imperative. You must. So God is telling you, tell me, you must fill you with the Spirit of all time. Your kingdom must come on earth as it is in heaven. You have to insist on these things. I want your life in mind. I want your river flowing through mine. I don't want any other spirit. I want yours flowing through me at all times. This is what God has given to us. Ugh. I'm running out of time. One last verse, Romans 8, 
28 has been mistranslated in almost every single translation that's out there. We know that in everything, God, who is the subject of this verb, he's not the object of it. We've, we've, heard, we've, we've been told all things work together for those. That, so that those would be the subject. That's not the language of the, of, of, of the, the Greek. God is the subject of this, and he is working. It's a present active verb. You guys like English. He's presently working with those, with us. So that with, go read N.T. Wright if you guys want to. Uh, Google uh, most mistranslated Bible verse, N.T. Wright, and you'll get a better explanation than I'm giving to you now. God is with you as you love him and are called according to his purpose. So as you are entering into your purpose, your vocation, as you are doing what you're called to do, there the river of God is. There's where he's working all things for your good. There's the river of life for you. You have to, you have to insist that you do his work. And so think about this. Like when you go into work our day, are you just going for a paycheck? Are you going instead to, to, to bring the river of life? When you're raising up your kids, are you just doing so so they, they don't die? Or are you doing so so that they can be raised up to be giant killers in the land? You know? <laughs> There's so much more that I want to just, I'll just leave that at you. That's, that statement isn't a salvation statement. It's a statement of your vocation. You are called to partner with Jesus in what you're called to do. And when you do, the river of life will flow into every area of your life. If it's not, then say, river of life, come to that area of life. I, you know, and sometimes you have to say, I repent of agreeing with death. We've been doing that in our family. This is the third bout that mom's had with cancer. And we say, hey, we want to live. We want to live. Everyone's going to die. We want to live. We renounce any covenant of death that we've made. And all of us in some ways may have made that covenant. That's in scripture. But I just want to encourage you all that if there's an area of your life, submit to the Lord in that place. Ask him to bring the river of life. If there's any part of you that's attached to it, says, Lord, I just offer it to you. Death can no longer work in this area. I only want life. So I'll leave you at that. We're going to pray uh, right now for 